Hello and welcome to another episode of A Little Ray of Sunshine, inspirational stories from everyday people. Today I have a gentleman with me by the name of Lowell Randall, and uh, I understand, Lowell, that you've got quite a story to share. Yeah, I think so. Oh, good. I'm excited to hear about it. Well, thank you. I'll just let you take over and uh, start wherever the story begins. All right. Well, thank you. I was ordained an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the 18th of May in 1972, and I was planning to go on a mission and already received my mission call to Chile. And so we decided as a family to take one last family trip before I left. I'm the oldest in the family, so I was the first one to go on a mission, the first one to leave home. At that time, there were eight of us in the family, uh, children, and then my two parents, so we made a plan. We live here in uh, Coltman, Idaho, which is just north of Idaho Falls. And we decided to take a small trip up to uh, my dad's sister's place, uh, our cousins in Green Canyon, which is kind of a resort, stay overnight. And then the next day we were going to do a loop up through Mesa Falls and up through Yellowstone Park and so forth. And uh, so we we decided to make that trip as kind of one last get-together as a family before I left on my mission. My next youngest sister, just younger than me, decided not to go with us. Her name is Linda Randall at that time. And she had, I I believe it was a a modeling appointment in Salt Lake. Uh, I was 18, almost 19. She was 17, almost 18. And uh, she and a friend decided to go to Salt Lake instead of coming with us on the trip. We were a little disappointed in that, but we understood. Then... Uh, so the day came when we left to Memorial Day weekend, I believe it was Sunday the 28th, if I recall, of May, and we uh, drove up to Green Canyon to stay overnight. As we went to bed that night, our folks told us we're going to get up early in the morning, which I think was probably around 7, and so we can go and have a full day together and, and make this trip. And I was like, okay, great. So I went to, to bed with, with my cousins, and the next morning I woke up about 9.30 in the morning, and I thought, well, so much for getting up early and leaving. <laughs> and uh, so I got dressed and went upstairs, and, and my aunt and uncle told me that the sheriff had come in the middle of the night to Green Canyon there to find my parents because my sister and her friend had been in a terrible accident. That was all we knew at that point. So, of course, we're very surprised and, and um, concerned so uh, I think the neighbors drove us back down to Coltman, the, the kids. My parents were gone, but all of us kids, the seven of us, they took us back to our home. Then uh, we were there for a few days. Our dad, of course, called to tell us. I should add that my mom was expecting at the time. She was expecting child number nine, and um, she was a few weeks away from full term. Not too much, just two or three weeks, and... and um, so my mom and dad had gone down to Logan, where my sister had ended up in the hospital, uh, to be with her, and we were at home in Coltman. So I can't remember the exact order of things, but I think it was the next day when my dad came home from Logan to tell us what had happened. And the story, as I remember it at this time, some 50 years later, is that my sister and her friend had had a problem with their car in the Salt Lake area and had decided to hitchhike home. And of course, young 17-year-old girls, not a really good idea, but that was a decision they made. They had made it to Logan, as I understand it. And as they were hitchhiking, a car came along with a couple of boys in it. 
and my sister and her friend turned them down. And when I heard that, I thought the fact that they turned those boys down to me meant they were pretty scruffy just because my sister wasn't that discriminating at that time in her life. And I thought if she turned them down, they, they were probably pretty rough looking guys. Right. Well, so that car left. And then a few minutes later, pickup came by with three guys in it. So the girls hopped in the back in the bed and they took off and they went north of Logan a few miles. And then all of a sudden the pickup turned off the main highway and went up, I think it was east towards the mountains on a dirt road, gravel road. And that bothered my sister and her friend because they knew you know, it wasn't the right direction. So they tapped on the window to let the boys know they didn't want to go that way. And that's when they saw that two of the boys were the same two they'd turned down earlier. Oh, so then they were really concerned, decided they better take action. And I think my sister jumped out of the back of the pickup first. And later, I think the police told us that the pickup was going about 40 to 50 miles an hour when she jumped out. And actually, the pickup sped up once they saw that my sister jumped out. So the other girl was kind of stuck in the back of the truck, but they had to go around a corner a little later on, and they slowed down. And so she jumped out when it was about 30 miles an hour, from what I understand. So it was Sunday night and starting to get dark, and my sister's friend came to first, and she realized she needed to get help. She was in front of a house. And so she stood up to walk towards the house and felt weak. So she sat down for a while and her head hurt. So she put her hand up on her head and felt blood. So then she realized I need, I better get over there. So she made it over the house and knocked on the door and the people came to the door and they were surprised, but they called the sheriff's office, the ambulance said, we didn't have 911 back in those days. And so they called for the ambulance and they, they said, well, that's surprising because we already sent the ambulance out to pick another girl up on that same road. And it turned out, as I understand it, that my sister had jumped out in front of another house, and it was in front of a house where a family was coming home from church. And they were slowing down to turn into their driveway when they saw this girl laying in the road, and it was my sister. If they had been going to the next place or a different place further up the road, they might have just run over her. We felt like the Lord was blessing both those girls when uh, the way things happened. And it turned out, from my understanding, too, that those were the last two houses on that dirt road. Again, that we felt like the Lord blessed them. So the ambulance took both the girls to the Logan Hospital. My sister's friend recovered first and was released within a few days. I'm not sure exactly how long she was there. But my sister was unconscious for three days. So when my dad came back to tell us all this, she was still unconscious. And I think it was about Wednesday, the 31st of May, when my dad took me to see her. She had come to become conscious again. And so he took me to go see her, I think because I was the oldest and so forth. And my mom was there too. I don't remember seeing my mom on that trip, but I do remember as we walked into the hospital room, she was in intensive care. My sister was still. She was very uh, damaged and, and not well. And so as we walked in, I was just shocked because I hadn't seen anything like this before. My sister was all banged up. She had several tubes running into her mouth and her nose and so forth. And and one eye was kind of wandering off on its own, you know. And my dad walked in and said, Linda, it's so good. You look so great compared to the last time I saw you. And I almost threw up. I thought, if she looks good now, what does she look like before? And so we visited a little bit. And then I came home again. I think it was the same day because I don't remember staying overnight anywhere. They kind of wanted me. Peggy, my sister, my younger sister than Linda, was she was about 15 or 16 at the time. And so... She was able to take care of the kids, and but they 
like me to be home too to help take care of them. Mm-hmm. So I went home again, and um, a few days later, we got a call from my dad. This is again, I think, the following Sunday on the fourth of June. My dad called and said, "You know, your mom went into labor and had the baby, and it was a little boy." And we were very excited because um, we didn't know. Of course, in those days, they didn't do ultrasounds and things like they do now as much, at least. And so you waited till the baby was born to find out what the gender was. And yeah. We were excited to have another baby brother. And it wasn't till the next day after that, my dad came home and said he's not doing very well. He's very sick, and they're afraid that he might not make it, that he might not live. The baby. The baby. Mm-hmm. So we all got really concerned. And so at that time, we had three members of the family in the Logan Hospital, my sister, my baby brother, and my mom. And uh, since I had just been ordained an elder, my dad chose me to go with him on, the, I believe, it was the 6th of June, the Tuesday, and we went back to Logan. He wanted to give the baby a blessing. All right. I think he'd already been given a name and a blessing, but he wanted just a blessing of health. Uh, we went to Logan, and I remember going in the hospital room where his name was Evan Dean, and uh, where he was, and he was in a small bassinet, just a couple feet long and a couple of feet wide. It wasn't a very big bassinet, but it was covered with an oxygen tent. And the condition he had, I, I don't remember the name of it now. I should have looked it up, but he had the condition where his lungs didn't really open up. He couldn't breathe very well. So essentially he was suffocating because he couldn't breathe. And nowadays they can handle that with various medications and treatments, and they don't lose nearly as many as they did back in those days. But um, that's why he was in the oxygen tent. They were hoping he'd get enough oxygen to pull him through until his lungs did open up and he, he could start breathing on his own more. So my dad and I went in, and we lifted the cover of the oxygen tent enough to put our fingers on his head. He was so small we couldn't put our hands on him, but we put our fingers on his head, and I anointed him. And my dad gave him a blessing, and I don't remember the words of what were said particularly. But So the very first priesthood ordinance I performed after I was ordained an elder was to give my little baby brother a blessing. Yeah. And right after um, we gave him the blessing, then they bundled him up and put him in an ambulance and headed for Salt Lake because they had better facilities in Salt Lake to be able to take care of him. And unfortunately, about a half hour down the road before they even got out of the valley, Logan Valley, he passed away. So they turned around and came back and brought him back to the hospital. And I don't remember much more about that time. Yeah, I don't remember how I got back to Otto Falls, but uh, I didn't stay in Logan. And um, my dad, he talked to the authorities and got permission to bring Evan Dean's body back to Otto Falls by himself rather than hiring an ambulance or a hearse or something to do it, which would have been prohibitively expensive for our family. We were poor farmers and didn't had eight plus children at that time. And so yeah. there wasn't a lot of money. And, uh, so I do remember that I went with my dad a few days later to pick up the body and they had put him in the body in some kind of a container. I don't know if it was a little casket or what it was exactly, but there was some, he wasn't just laying in the back of the station wagon. He was in some kind of a little box or container, but, but we did put him in the back of the station wagon that we had. And my dad and I, Drove him back to Idle Falls. My mom, meanwhile, was staying with Linda because she was still in the intensive care unit. So we brought Evan Dean back and, and handed him over to the Woods Funeral Home there in Idle Falls. And a few days after that, my mom came home, and they had a funeral for Evan Dean. And it, it was, uh, I know we had a viewing beforehand, primarily so that my brothers and sisters could see him. 
Mm-hmm. I was the only one of the siblings that saw him while he was alive, and the others hadn't really seen him at all. And so I remember all the kids coming over and looking in the casket and, and you know, kind of touching him and just getting acquainted with him a little bit. And my youngest sister at that time was Valerie, and she was three years old. And she couldn't see into the casket, so I remember picking her up so that she could look down and see her baby brother. It was a few weeks later when Linda was finally well enough to be transported from the Logan Hospital to the Idle Falls Hospital. And as I understand it, like Evan Dean, she was brought home in the station wagon. But uh, they had to take her to the Idle Falls Hospital because she still wasn't well enough to go home and recover mm-hmm. from home. Sometime during that time, I actually flew to California where my grandparents lived to spend a couple days with them before I left on my mission. And then a few days later, I came back. My mission farewell was on the 18th of June. So this all happened, boom, boom, boom. And um, back in those days, they actually wanted or promoted missionaries to have farewells and make a big deal of it. They didn't, if you might remember or know that they didn't actually send missionaries to Utah or Idaho. They would send them out from there to other places. And and I remember when I was a young kid, I never saw a missionary, an actual missionary at work in Ida, you know, where I grew up because they left and then two years later they came back. And yeah. We had no missionaries where we lived. And that changed a few years after I left. But during the time that I was there for my farewell, and part of the thing was they had a big farewell and then they would invite people to donate to the missionary for their mission to help them get started yeah, yeah. you know and um, normally you'd have 20 or 30 people that would donate money to a missionary that was leaving the, the stalwart members of the church and then a few family friends and so forth and that'd be about it and I remember at my farewell because the whole community knew what we'd been going through and there were about 200 people that donated to mm-hmm. my mission after the farewell and I was really impressed and grateful for that and and it made a big difference. So on Wednesday, the 21st of June, I went to the temple for the first time and received my endowments. My parents were with me. So again, there was a lot happening really fast. Yeah. And then on the 24th was when I went into the mission home. Uh, they didn't have the MTC yet, the Missionary Training Center at that time. And so my parents drove me down to Salt Lake and we bought a suit and some things, and then they drove out. There was a mission home about two blocks from the Salt Lake Temple, an actual home. And I think the year I left on my mission, there were the whole year there were a total of 6,000 missionaries that, that went out that year. So twelve or 13,000 that were serving, and about half of them went out each year. And so the week that I went, there were you know about 200 missionaries maybe. It wasn't a huge crowd compared to today. And so I entered the mission home for my mission to Chile. I think, I mean, Linda came home from the hospital to recover at home sometime after that. She was not home when I left on my mission. And I didn't see her again for two more years. This is your little sister. Mm -hmm. Linda, the one that was in the the accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, just to recap, that was an incredibly intense month for, for me and my family. Just under four weeks from the 28th of May to the 24th of June, we had a major accident, a birth, a death, a funeral. I gave my first priesthood blessing. I flew to California and back. I had my mission farewell. I went to the temple for the first time, received my endowment, and I entered the mission. So that's a lot going on a lot in a month. It was a very busy time. So yeah, yeah. That's kind of my story of that whole incident. So Linda 
she ended up recovering and and doing well. Yeah, we I think we know a lot more about traumatic brain injuries now than we did then. I think in some ways it affected her the rest of her life. But she, yeah, she did eventually regain her physical health and uh she became much more desirous of following the gospel than she had prior to that and actually went on a mission to Taiwan. And so um uh, yeah, but it took her several months before she was physically back to normal, and I think even yeah. longer mentally that it affected her, you know, because of the TBI. Mm-hmm. So. so through all of that, obviously there were some traumatic things that, that went on, and you just talked about a month of the time uh, growing up. What was it like to be the oldest sibling of, was it eight or nine? There were eight of us total at that time. Eventually there were 11, counting Evan Dean. So I'm the oldest of 10 that grew to adulthood. What was that like to be the oldest of 10 kids in a family? I'll be very frank. I felt a real responsibility to be a good person, to be a good example to my younger siblings. Mm -hmm. I carried that with me pretty much all the time. You know, I, I was very conscious of the fact that if I goofed up that my siblings would know that and that you know mm-hmm. it was that was something that that guided my life quite a bit I mean, of course the gospel did my parents teachings and so forth but in, on top of all that I felt a real responsibility to be good for my siblings so that they would have a good role model to follow that's awesome and you said you grew up on a farm yeah how did growing up on a farm help you later in life what did it do for you I think it taught me the value of work you know, hard work to take initiative. Because our family was growing, my dad had to take other jobs besides the farm work. And so when I was a teenager, young man in high school, um, I did a lot of the farm work. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean that I made the decisions or so forth, but a lot of times my dad would say, we need to go haul the hay today. And then he'd go off to work and I didn't up hauling the hay all day or whatever. I also had, um, it's an interesting side little story. My dad had milk cows when I was young. And so from six to age 10 or so, he had the milk cows and I helped him, you know, I'd do my chores, I'd feed the calves, whatever he had me do. And so all those years, he kept telling me, when you turn 12, I'll give you a calf of your own. You can have your own calf. Well, then when I was 10, he had an auction and sold the herd. And I remember thinking, my calf is gone. (laughs) I won't get a calf. But to his word, and and Zoanne has made this comment, that he's one of the most honest people that I know, two years later when I turned 12, he bought a calf. Even though he didn't have a milking herd or anything, we still had the barn and the corrals and everything, of course. And so he bought me a calf, and I raised that calf. And so when I was 14, she was a couple years older and had her first calf. But um, those are tough years for kids. And for a while, she was my best friend. <laughs> Your calf. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and as she became a yearling and a, and a heifer, and and I would go to mutual, and the kids would mistreat me, or I'd take offense at something or whatever, and then I'd go home and out in the corral, and I'd her name was Queenie, and I'd call mm-hmm. her over and I'd tell her all my problems and yeah. <laughs> how tough life was, you know. And yeah. but but the reason I share that is because I grew that calf into a small herd. By the time I graduated from high school, I had four milking cows several year old steers and heifers and a few calves and um i actually would hire my younger brothers to milk them if i couldn't i'd milk them most of the time but if i had a date or something i'd hire them to milk them and i 
our um, agreement with my parents was I would provide all the milk for the family and they provided all the feed for my cows. I know I got the best deal out of that. That was a good deal. It was yeah. a very good deal. <laughs> but because of that, then I was able to, um, any milk that I had left over, I would sell to the creamery. So I had my own business by the time I was 14 years old. And all through high school, I never once asked my parents for an allowance or to give me money to go on a date or anything. It was my own money that I earned by milking my cow and selling the milk to creamery. And I had to keep records and all the stuff that a good businessman does, you know. And yeah. So I learned a lot from all of that, too. So well, That's gratifying yeah. to, to know that you were able to do that. Yeah. And that was a big benefit through the rest of my life. Yeah. Sounds so, like you had an ideal, I mean, thinking about today's world and and the world you grew up in, I think people look at that and kind of wish that that's the life they had, you know? Well, it sounds idyllic, um, and in many ways it was, but also I don't want to gloss over, I mean, it was yeah, life. It was hard. Know? And life mm-hmm. is never a, a glide down the river in a, in a you know, fancy canoe. It, mm-hmm. There are times when it's nice and peaceful to glide down the river, and other times you got to roll like heck to get across, you yeah, know? And, yeah. and that's the way it was. I mean, there were a lot of difficulties that we had, and we just talked about my sister's accident, for example, mm-hmm. and and that, but it brought us together. Another thing that I'll just share, um, you asked about being the oldest and how yeah. it impacted my life. When I married my wife, she was the youngest daughter of three girls, and then they had a baby brother after that. But he was only five years younger than she was. So by the time she was 10 or 12, he was not a baby anymore. So when we got married and, and started having kids, I was used to having babies around. I mean, you know, I was 23 when my youngest brother was born. Mm. And so I was very aware of what babies were like and she wasn't you know (laughs) and so that was a difference in our life is we had these little one-year-old and two-year-olds and she would get frustrated them i'm like well no that's what a one-year-old does you know and so that was another way that it kind of impacted me to be the oldest of the 11 eventually kids you know yeah so So you gained some good life experience through all of that yeah well lo i appreciate you taking time to share your story well thank you for the opportunity Uh, i try to tell people that Each of us have a unique story, and uh, we're unique as people, and so our stories kind of shape us and help people understand us a little bit because we're products of the environment in which we grew up in. We're not victims of our life circumstances, but we're products of it, I believe, and it sounds like you took the bull by the horns and ran with it, or the calf, whichever you want (laughs) to say, and uh, made a great life for yourself. I haven't really been back to live in Idaho since I was 18. Mm -hmm. I've been here for a month or two at a time at various times, but it still feels like home. Yeah. You know, I've lived in many places around the world and traveled in many more places around the world, but but Idaho and Idaho Falls specifically still feels like home, even though it's been over 50 years since I lived here Mm -hmm. permanently. So, Well, thank you, Grover. Appreciate it. You bet. It was wonderful getting to know you. Thank you. You bet. And to my listeners, as always, remember to speak up, speak out, and speak often. Bye-bye.